Good morning. <laughs> no, nothing. Hey, okay. It's good to see everybody today. So glad you're here. Anyway, it's good to see you. Glad to, to be with you today. If you're visiting with us, we'd love to have you. Just let us know that you're visiting with us. Um, there is a QR code that you can, if you're aware of how to do that. We actually, last weekend, had somebody become a high-tech redneck and fill out the QR code. So pleased. There it is. Um, I was so pleased uh, that they did that. At any rate, if you're one who uh, knows how to operate a QR code, then certainly uh, scan that and you can let us know that you're worshiping with us. Um, so uh, please do that if you don't mind. A couple of other, other announcements just to uh, bring to your attention. Um, the ladies, uh, the women of the word, uh, they're going to be packing Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes. If you want to, uh, you can you can pack a box yourself. There were a couple of boxes that came in today that were packed, ready to go for the ladies for Operation Christmas Child. Or if you'd like to make a, a monetary donation, you can do that by mail. You can do it in person. Uh, you can designate it at the church, and those ladies will go get items to pack. And then those are going to be packed on Tuesday the 25th, so that's a week from this Tuesday, from 6 to 8 p.m., and uh, finger foods are provided. Bring a friend, and everyone's invited, right, Kelly? Everybody's invited. Okay, so all the women are invited. <laughs> need to. That's why it's called Women of the Word. So, um, one other announcement to bring to your attention is that we are progressing through the deacon selection process, um, and so next week, the congregation will, by secret ballot, vote on adding Joel Ratliff. Brandon Shanklin, and Jack Shanklin to the deacon body. So if you um, need to visit with either of these men about anything, uh, feel free to do so. If there's questions you want to ask them, uh, particularly uh, this time is built into the process to give you an opportunity to do that. If, you, if there are any concerns that you have about any of these men, you can share them with me or the deacons. But in preparation for next Sunday's vote, we ask you to pray fervently in preparation. That's all the announcements that I have at this time. Does anyone else know of other announcements to pass along? All right, I'll take that as a no. Well, would you please stand and we will have our call to worship time together. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2, and we will read this all together. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Let's worship the Lord together.
Would you join me in a word of prayer, please? Father, we have sang together um, some of the most amazing truths, particularly that last song uh, that describes our condition so precisely. Each one of us, years spent in vanity and pride, caring not our Lord was crucified, not knowing at all, Lord, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and, and apart from your divine intervention, we would have been condemned to hell forever. And, and Lord, when we stop and when we ponder upon what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, I can't think that there would be a one of us that doesn't say, why would you think that much of me? Of course, we know, Lord, that you looked upon us when we were um, so filthy in our sins. There was nothing lovable, desirable, likable about any of us. Um, our sins were just as filthy and rotten and stinking in your sight uh, as beyond anything we can imagine. But yet, in mercy, because of what you did at Calvary, mercy there was great and grace was free and pardon there was multiplied to all of us who have called upon your name in repentance and faith. And we were set free. Lord, help us to be reminded of who we were before you saved us and to be reminded of what you have done for us in Christ and yet what you are still doing in us. Lord, we trust that your word says beyond all shadow of a doubt, Paul says in Philippians 1.5, that the one who began a good work in you, that's, that's you, Lord. The one who began a good work in you, that's, that's us, will be faithful to complete it. Lord, I know, and I think all of us would probably say the same thing. If it were up to us to keep our salvation, we would have already lost it. But you're worthy of all praise, and that those whom you save, you save to the uttermost. Uh, you carry them from their rebirth all the way to being reunited with you. And by your grace, you give us your Holy Spirit that produces change in us where we begin to will what you will and we begin to work, do things that we had never been able in our own power to do before. Lord, what an amazing change you have brought about in your people. Lord, we do pray humbly, Lord, that you would water, that you would fertilize the seed that you have planted in each of our souls. Lord, we all have struggles. There's weeds in our garden. We pray that you would pull those weeds. Uh, Lord, we often seek sustenance from another place, something that would be our fertilizer. Lord, remove it from us. Lord, give us an undivided heart that we may, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love you and bear fruit that keeps with repentance, that proves that we are your people, that demonstrates to the lost around us that there is a God in heaven. And he is active, even now, among his people. Lord, if there are any here today that they don't know Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord, I ask, God, that you, that through the preaching of your word, through these songs that are sung, Lord, we trust right now that your presence is with us through the, the Holy Spirit. But we pray that if there are any here today that do not know Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord, today would be the day of salvation for them. 
the Spirit would move so in their hearts that they would want gladly to forsake all and cleave only to you. That they would long for the salvation that you give. That they would long for the life that only you can give. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory for you are the one who is all deserving of it. Lord, as we continue in our worship service, um, Lord, I confess I'm distracted by many things. And I probably am not alone. But Lord, how easy it is for us to just sing words and our heart not be engaged. So I ask God that you do what only you can do in each one of our hearts, which is to remove the distractions. Lord, we know that we have a part in that, but we, we pray that you would meet us in our obedience. That we'd remove, you'd remove the distractions from our heart and our minds so that we may, in spirit and truth, give the kind of worship that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords deserves. And we pray it in His name. Amen. Turning your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through 13. I told James to text me a reminder about this. But you didn't text me to remind me. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault within them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them as the Lord, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be, be their God, and they will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant, he has, he has made the first obsolete. 
Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The statement, I will be merciful to their sins. We're going to learn a new song. You may have heard it before, but we've never done it. So we're going to learn this together. i 
without you we would be lost and drifting and enslaved and hopeless and one day we'll stand before you and we will worship your name for all of eternity and the reality will be that it's not because of what I can do or have done but yet Jesus in me alone break our hearts for the sin in our lives crush us for the pride that we hold on to and we white knuckle our faith Change our hearts today so that you will be glorified in a lost and dying world through what people see you in us. In the name of Jesus Christ alone we pray and God's people say. Is the pulpit on? Can you turn it off? Um, oh, I know what the problem is. The unit's not turned on back there. No, no, no. Jane? Yeah. Anyway, while they're sorting that out, if you would please um, turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. That should get it. Check 1-2. And turn off the pulpit now. Okay. Yeah. Hey, technology, what'd you say this morning, James? Technology works except when you don't need it, or except, except when you need it? Only when you don't need it? Okay. Um, if you would please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 12 and 13. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one in the pew somewhere near you. If you would find uh, the back of the Bible, turn to page 155, you'll be exactly where you need to be. Um, and that is in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're still in a sermon series uh, called His Glorious Grace. The title of this morning's effort, may, uh, this morning's sermon may surprise you um, because we've been talking about grace and this is about effort. Uh, so hopefully everything will become clear as we work our way through this text this morning. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13. Would you please stand as I read God's word? Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is God's word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for these verses. How it reminds us that you expect from your people an obedience that is not coincidental. It's not accidental. It's something that we aim to do, we want to do, we intend to do, but apart from you, we can't do it. And so, Lord, help us to, to not fall in, in the ditch that might say, well, until the Lord moves my heart, I'm not going to obey. And then, Lord, help us to trust not in, um, not to put you to the test in any way, but to trust that when we declare our weakness and act out of act in obedience out of our weakness with a with a real desire to do what you command us to do to trust that you'll meet us in the obedience that you'll work in us and produce in us what you require of us lord remind us that it is an all out effort how paul would talk about I don't consider myself to have attained it, but forgetting what was behind and straining toward what is ahead, I, he just lowered his shoulder in an all-out pursuit of you. Lord, help us to be reminded that a lackadaisical, laissez-faire approach to Christianity will deprive us of, the, of, of a first-hand knowledge of the beauty of your sustaining grace. Lord, guide us as we study together in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We've been talking about grace. Grace is receiving as a free gift what we do not deserve and could never earn. We don't deserve forgiveness. We've talked about that on one of the Sundays. We don't deserve it, but we receive it. We are freed from the penalty of our sins. We are redeemed from slavery to sin. We don't deserve redemption, but God gives it to us through His Son. We don't deserve salvation. In other words, justification. We don't deserve the righteousness that God gives us in Christ Jesus, but He gives it to us by His grace. We don't deserve the holiness that God gives to His people, but by His grace, He gives it to us. It's all of grace. Charles Spurgeon wrote a book called All of Grace. And the scandal of the cross, I saw this post on Facebook here recently. The scandal of the cross is that, and some of you may not know who this is, Jeffrey Dahmer, a renowned serial killer who, I'll stop there, he was a brutal man. I don't know if you've heard, but he found Christ. I don't know how that strikes you. Because there may be part of each and every one of us that says, -uh, uh uh-uh, uh-uh, not him. He had to make some sort of change. He had to make some sort of retribution, restitution. He needs to have paid for his crimes. But the scandal of the cross is that Jeffrey Dahmer can be saved by grace. And someone like Mother Teresa, who does not believe in salvation like we do, which is all of grace... And she works and she works and she works and she's been among a group of people for years and years and years, lepers, the the lowest of society in India. And that all that she's done in comparison 
to all the evil that Jeffrey Dahmer has done. That's the scandal of the cross, that all the works in the world can't get you to heaven. And you can have lived the worst possible life imaginable. And there's grace to cover your sin. That's the scandal of the cross. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones says if you're preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism. Now, let me pause and and, and, and define that. It's a denial that God's law in Scripture should control the Christian's life. It, it's, there's got to be, there's gotta be a, a, an antinomian would say, I can live exactly how I want to live. I don't have to pay attention to God's law. I don't have to do anything the Bible says. I'm saved all of grace. Now, I think what Martin Lloyd-Jones is getting at here, if you're preaching of the gospel of God's free grace, Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism. You're not preaching the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. What he's getting at is that grace is so unbelievable we always want to add something to it. Always. There's some parts of us that want to add something to it. There's got to be more than just grace. Well, we could swing in the opposite direction. Knowing that grace, uh, that works have no bearing on justification. Knowing that salvation can't be lost because it's all of grace. Knowing that if we could lose our salvation, we most certainly would. But that doesn't mean that works are insignificant for the Christian. And that's something that I believe Lloyd-Jones would most certainly agree with. What, What he and others have spoken about in the past vehemently, vocally, is what is called cheap grace. That's a, that's a phrase that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, perhaps you don't know who he is, he was a Lutheran pastor during, in, in Nazi Germany. And he was powerful in what he wrote here about cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Here's what he means by that. That there's fellowship, a membership, a congregation, a fellowship without a confession. In other words, if you want to be a part of a church, just walk in the door. They'll receive you. That's all that's that's needed. You don't need to have a confession of the belief and the faith that's handed down once for all to the saints. Now what he means by communion without confession is that there is a fellowship that is based on the foundation of the faith we all confess. And that's mandatory. Continues, absolution, forgiveness, without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace. The person who understands grace is cheap has written a date in their Bible. The day that when they became a Christian... But there's no change. It's as if that person received a gospel that changes nothing and requires nothing. But grace isn't only active in conversion. It is as if grace is all in the past. Grace is active in sanctification. So 
Is there no effort on our part if salvation is all of grace? Listen to what Dallas Willard says. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with the forgiveness of sins alone. Another Willard quote. Grace not only cleanses us, but it is the fuel that, dry, that propels us forward. You know, we, unless we are fueled, we go nowhere. And grace is the fuel that propels us believers forward. One final Willard quote. He says, the sinner, and there's a, con- a contrast between sinner and saint here, so pay, make sure you're, you're watching that. The sinner is not the one who uses a lot of grace. The saint burns grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. What he's getting at there is grace-fueled effort. And that's the title of this morning's sermon. It's what Paul is describing in these verses. Now, when we talk about grace, uh, we've talked about grace in terms of getting what you do not, you do not deserve and you could not earn. And, and that's how we ought to think of it in terms of justification. But now, you, you consider what Peter says in, in 2 Peter 3.18. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is a different usage of the word grace. There it means the power. There's a power that, that, that is ours in Christ Jesus, which is available to us through the Spirit. Grace isn't only in the past where it's operative at conversion. No, grace continues to work in the working believer. And so Paul gives a command this morning. He says, work out your salvation. We'll look at that in a moment. There's a context for this command. And there's a condition placed on this command. And there is a confidence that you can have in this command. And let's start with the context. The context of grace-fueled effort. Now, the first one is scriptural. We have to make sure that we put the scripture that we're looking at this morning in context. And so the context here, you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, it's some of the most beautiful lines that have ever been written by a human hand. He says, So if there's any encouragement from Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Then he transitions to how the believer is able to do this. Let each of you not look to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the immediate preceding context. So scripturally, Paul is trying to say grace-fueled effort is nothing without Christ. What Christ has done, His work, it's nothing without Christ's example. 
And it's nothing without Christ's provision. I point again to to, to verse 5. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you, and it's yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus provided what you need in order to live like he wants you to live. That's the scriptural context, but there's a particular context, and in particular, it's the community, the community of Philippi, the church there. If you look at the verbs in this text, and, and, and it says, therefore, my beloved, that's, that's a plural, as you, that's a plural, have always obeyed, that is a plural verb. There's all these communal commands that are addressed to y'all. That's good country speak, right? Y'all do these things. As y'all have always obeyed this community, they have been an obedient people. Paul says, when I was with you, when I was among you, you obeyed. Now, who among us wouldn't say, when you got someone like the Apostle Paul in your midst, heck yeah, it's a lot easier to obey. Right? It's a lot easier to obey when you're at, at youth camp, right? Or at a conference. It's a whole lot easier to do all of those things. And past obedience is good, but here's the thing that Paul's getting at. He says, You obeyed when I was present. Past obedience is good, but it doesn't carry over to the present. In fact, the work that, that has been started in you, it's it's not over. It's just now starting. So he says, not just in my presence, but now much more so in my absence. Now Paul, if you look in chapter 1, he's in prison. And so these people um, are dealing with a lot of particular circumstances. Their leader, the one that they look to, is in prison. He's not with them anymore. There's some external pressures. There's a group of people called the Judaizers who are trying to come into the church and and muddle up the gospel so that people lose sight of the fact that it is all by grace. They're saying, no, you must add these works. You must follow the the, the law of Moses and be circumcised. Paul's he understands that they are dealing with this pressure. But there's another pressure. There's an internal pressure. And that there's disunity in the church. There's two ladies that Paul mentions in chapter 4, verse 2. It's Euodia and Syntyche. So this is the context in which Paul says, work out your salvation. Don't forget that this is a community thing, which means that there's individuals involved. But also, don't forget, you're able to do this because of Christ. There's a condition that Paul puts on uh, this grace-fueled effort that he commands. Now, you might be wondering, why am I I looking at this second? Because it comes at the end of the sentence. That's in English. In in, In Greek, this comes at the very beginning. It would read in the Greek this way. With fear and trembling, work out your own salvation. That's how it's worded in the Greek. It's put up front to stress the condition in which these Philippians are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now this this, 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 
expression is an Old Testament expression. You see it in a number of places. And it describes a humble reverence, a devotion to God, a dependence upon Him. Paul is really the only place where this particular phrase is used. And it's used to describe the spirit of reverence and humility that should characterize all of the mutual relationships in a Christian community. And these words that Paul uses, fear and trembling, it suggests that God is present with them. And they're to keep that in mind so that they, with awe and reverence, uphold, take seriously their responsibilities of Christian obedience and citizenship. They're to have a tender conscientiousness that fears in the presence of an omnipresent God so that they feel... God can't ask too much of me. Joseph portrayed, exhibited fear and trembling when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. And he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The kind of holy fear and trembling that is here trembles at the thought of doing or omitting anything that would offend God. It's not a dread like you're a slave. It's not a dread that you might think, I'm damned because of my behavior. No. This type of fear and trembling is a shrinking from all carelessness in faith and life. The Christian doesn't dread God who gives him the life-giving gospel, but he does dread the poison of sin that robs him of the strength to work the salvation of himself. To work it out. So far from killing the Christian's joy in the Lord, this faith actually, this fear actually increases the joy by increasing the the believer's assurance that the Lord is actually walking with them in their salvation. It's a fear that's marked by self trust, it's a vigilance against temptation, it opposes high mindedness. It takes heed lest we fall. It understands the power and insidiousness of inward corruption, the deceitfulness of the heart. It shrinks from whatever would offend and dishonor God. One writer says this, Let us only consider how many lusts we have to mortify and how many duties to perform, how many temptations we have to withstand and adversaries to overcome, how prone we are to err, and how many devices Satan uses in order to deceive us, how insufficient we are of ourselves for this great work, and how awful would be the consequences of miscarrying in it, of failing. And we shall readily acknowledge that our utmost caution is little enough. Paul lived in fear and trembling, where in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he says, I discipline my body. In, in the King James, it says, I, I buffet, I beat my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Hopefully. I know I can't, I just feel like I can't stress enough this particular condition. Because... I have to be honest about myself. Perhaps you feel this way too. Do I really fear God? Do I really long to put His commands above my comfort? Do I long to make sure that I do nothing that would bring 
dishonor to his name. I believe this is why Paul puts this at the beginning and not at the end as in our English translations. Well, finally, we get to the command, the command of grace-fueled effort. And the command is work out your own salvation. Now, you might be thinking, now this is weird for Paul to say, we're saved by grace and now work out your own salvation. But this is not a sudden switch from grace, I'm sorry, from salvation by grace through faith to salvation by grace through faith plus works. I mean, all you have to do is go back and read the previous verses. Paul's saying here, work, work out, effort, put effort into the work. It is a present continuous command. Literally, you would, you would translate it this way, continually work out. Now, let me give some examples how I th- that will, I think, help us wrap our mind around what it means to work out our salvation. You recall in the Old Testament, God granted to the people of Israel the land of Canaan. Remember that? God granted it to them. But they had to conquer their enemies, right? He, the battle was already won. They had to fight the war. Or the war was already won. They had to fight the individual battles. They are the ones who had to go to combat. They are the ones that had to walk around Jericho before the walls would fall. They were the ones, like Gideon, who had to, of all things, use torches, trumpets, and clay jars in order to defeat the Midianites. The, The war was won, but they had to fight the battle. You see, when Paul says, work out your own salvation, he's saying that there's an inward change wrought in salvation that does produce an outward change. The Lord, just like He did in Canaan, in us He has conquered sin. But the believer must still fight against the enemies of remaining sin. And not only must we fight, we should want to fight because that's what God is working in us. See, through salvation, we have not only a new relationship with God, but a new relationship with sin. We give it no quarter. It must be conquered. It must surrender, not us. So when Paul is writing this to the Philippians, they have the outward pressure of these Judaizers. And the work that they must do, the Philippians, study the gospel, know it well, preserve it. Don't let it be compromised. Stand firm against the enemies of the gospel. That's their external pressures, but they have inward pressures of disunity. So Paul, reminding them of what is theirs in Christ, tells them, be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. And then he says in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That is, that is, when you say work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that sounds so, it's kind of nondescript. But Paul is saying this in the midst of all these commands, as if to say, your obedience to these commands is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And and I want to remind us that this is both a corporate work 
Remember that all the y'alls that are in there? It's a corporate work. All those commands that I just mentioned, they're all in the plural. But there's an individual work. Euodia and Syntyche, they have to agree in the Lord. That's what Paul says to them. He doesn't command them. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. He's calling for them to come together. And that's the particular corporate context of this command. Finally, we come to the confidence of grace-fueled effort. If I put myself on the line and I, I put in the work, I want to do what God asked me to do. I want to put all the weight of my being onto it. What confidence do I have that this is really going to happen? Paul says... It is God who works in you. This, this is, he says, and I, and I believe we ought to believe this, you're assured of success. Success in the Christian life and sanctification is working out, in working out our own salvation, it depends on our work. God commands us to work. Full stop. He's designed sanctification, our growth in Christ's likeness, to work this way. And remember, God won't obey for us. Obedience is solely on us. However, apart from God working in us, we are unable to obey. The confidence we have in putting forth grace-fueled effort, God is working in us. How? He's both to will and to work. God works in the believer. He changes the believer's will, aligning it bit by bit, day by day with his own. Believers are not drones. We don't act with no free will. No, God changes our will. He makes a change to our wants and desires so that we want holiness. We want to hate Sin. We want to please God. We want to conquer sin and love others and put others before self. That we want to have close fellowship with Him. But it's not just the wanting that God is doing in His people. It's the working. Some of us might say, you know, if I have a wanter and a worker, my wanter is working, but my worker is wanting. Does anybody feel that way? My, 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 my worker, my wanter's working, but my worker is it's kind of wanting. It's not really working. But what Paul is saying here, when, when we obey with the confidence of grace-fueled effort, that God closes the gap between our wanting and our working. It's not just wishing and hoping. God actually produces in us a changed will that, that not only wants to obey, but acts. And he does it all for his good pleasure. It pleases God to see our wills changed. It pleases God to see us put our wants that he has changed into action. It pleases him to guide obedient believers into working for his good pleasure and knowing that as he guides them into his good pleasure, he is pleased with them. I want to leave you with a story of someone who had to do what Paul said right here. 
It's a lady named Corey Ten Boom. She was in Munich. And she had come from Holland to Germany after the war, 1947, and was giving to these people a message. God forgives. The message was over. And the people were beginning to leave. She had told them, when we confess our sins... God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. But she noticed that there was a person in the back of the room that at the end of the message was kind of swimming upstream trying to get to her. And as he approached, she began to recognize him. And a flood of memories came back. See, Corey Ten Boom had been in a concentration camp. And this man was a guard at this concentration camp. So she recalled walking naked in front of this man, seeing her sister's dead form on the floor. They had been arrested for concealing Jews in their home during the Nazi occupation at Holland, and they had been sent to Ravensbrück. That's where this man was a security guard. So this man comes up, Corey Ten Boom, And he says, a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, she says, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. The guard says, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. She thought, no, he did not remember me. The guard continued, but since that time I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again his hand came out. Will you forgive me? She says, and I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. And Betsy, that's her sister, had died in that place. Could this man, this guard, erase Betsy's slow, terrible death simply for the asking? She continues, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition. If we do not forgive those who have injured us, she quotes scripture, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it, she says, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world to rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those that held on to and nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I still stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. She says, I prayed silently. Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much 
You must supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, I cried. With all my heart, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus to learn to forgive in the hardest of situations, I never had difficulty in forgiving. She says, I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. Maybe I'm glad it's that way. For every time I go to Him, He teaches me something else. I recall the time some 15 years ago when some Christian friends whom I loved and trusted did something which hurt me. And you would have thought, having forgiven the Nazi guard, that this would have been child's play. It wasn't. For weeks I seethed inside. But at last I asked God again to work His miracle in me. And again it happened. First, the cold-blooded decision then the flood of joy and peace. I believe Corey Ten Boom knew what it meant to work, her, work out with fear and trembling her own salvation to forgive. And she found when she obeyed that God met her in that moment and He worked in her both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now I doubt any of us Well, I know we have it. None of us have ever been in a Nazi uh, concentration camp. I know that. But perhaps there's something in your experience that you're still holding on to. Or there's something in your experience that you think, that is the hardest thing I would ever have to do. Maybe it is to forgive someone. Maybe it's to give up the pornography you love so much. Because you get great enjoyment out of it. Maybe it's you have a wayward child. And and you know that you need to go after that child. And it's the hardest thing you would have to do. Whatever it is that is such an obstacle in your mind. The Lord is able to do exceedingly and abundantly all more than we can ask or imagine. When we meet Him, when we, when we obey, He meets us in our obedience. And He wills and He works for His good pleasure. Now we may be like Corey Ten Boom, where it's a continual work in progress. But God will work. The question is, for all of us, is will we? Let's pray. Lord, this is a lot to take in. If it weren't for Christ Jesus, 
this would have been all for naught. Every last thing I said would have been all for naught. But because Christ Jesus has won the war day by day as we obey, like the Israelites, we can win the little battles as part of the greater plan you have to bring us closer fellowship with you, to draw us into deeper holiness, to conquer sin in our lives, to put us on display for your glory. Lord, help us to trust and to do the work knowing that when we do, you will work in us and through us. That we can put forth grace-fueled effort. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing in times like these. We need a Savior. If you would, please stand. If there's any sort of decision, maybe you need to come and pray. This time is for you to respond. So there's a, a person on our, our um, prayer list named Andrew Dickinson. It's a friend of Kyler's. He had a brain tumor uh, that was removed. And as of Wednesday night, he had not awakened from this surgery. Now I understand that he is awakened and doing really well, but I know that family would continue to um, appreciate prayers. Um, also, Becky and Dennis Fabry, they're on our prayer list. That is uh, Nell Hedrick's daughter and son-in-law. Um, Becky was diagnosed with stage 3 stage 3 thyroid cancer so pray for Becky uh, Ben Campbell of course passed away last week his funeral is tomorrow at 10.30 hope you're able to come uh, continue to pray for Candace. I wasn't able to visit her this week but many of those who did say that she's doing really really well um, Charlie was and he's not in here right now but Charlie we had to go into the VA hospital last week and had some tests run had, had a few issues have they found out Anything from the tests? Uh, oh, yes. Okay. 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 Well, that's that's good to know. Chris, we're glad you're here this morning. Amen. Praise the Lord. She's out of the hospital and still praying for some answers to come, uh, but they've ruled out heart issues at this point, so glad that you're here. 
Uh, we need to add Calvin Hector to our list. Calvin is a friend of Charles's, um, Avery's. Um, many of you probably know uh, know him. He had to have back surgery this last week, so pray for him. Um, there's also Jim Watson has been added to our list. That's a friend of the Shanklins. He was the former, um, at one time he was their uh, director of missions when they were in Pearsall. And uh, he is near the end of his life. Hospice has been called in. Um, so his desire was just to be with his family and to share the gospel as much as he could. Um, I don't know of any other updates unless you all might have some. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Uh, Kyler's special friend, should we say it that way? Um, Sterling, you've seen him here. Um, a bull stepped on his right hand and almost took off. I mean, part of his hand was just really, really messed up. They had to take him back into surgery this morning uh, because the wound uh, had some infection in it. I guess they did not get it fully cleaned out. So do you all have any... Okay, surgery went well. Hospital for a week? Oh, till midweek. Okay, so be in the hospital until midweek. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Okay. What was the last name? Rickinson. Okay. Okay. Y'all may have to tell Barbara the spelling on that, So, but we'll pray for her as well. Anyone else? You asked me last week about... Kayla Rigney. Kayla Rigney. So she did finish her chemo. The baby is due the middle of the second week of November. Okay. The baby's had to go through the chemo. So the baby's probably going to be in NICU for a while. But um, they don't know anything. They're waiting on tests to find out. If that's done the job that it needs to do. Okay. So, okay. They still got a rope, rope rotated. Yes, sir. Ooh, goodness. Anyone else? Well, if you'll stand, we'll have a time of prayer. We'll say the Great Commission will be dismissed. <coughs> Father, we do indeed thank you for being the great physician, the great healer, the great comforter. And we're thankful that in times like these, we do have a Savior, that we have an anchor uh, that will not budge, that will not move. We uh, thank you, Lord, for the good reports we were able to pass along today. Different people um, doing well, had some issues, but now they seem to be on the, the other side of things. We praise you for that. But, Lord, for those that are still fighting, uh, whatever it is they're fighting against, um, whether it's disease, uh, illness, uh, surgery, um, whatever kind of issue it is, Lord, we trust that as we lift them up in prayer, you know their needs, and you will meet their needs in accordance with your will. So, Father, we do... Pray that in the name of Jesus and just ask that you would show mercy on all these folks. We pray it in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let's say the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Go therefore and disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. Have a great day. We'll see you later.